in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree that God made for us. Not the tree that bore the fruit of the fall, not the tree of death. There was a tree that God made for us, the tree of life. If you could go up to that tree and pick its fruit and take a bite of the fruit of the tree of life, it would change your life. The deterioration of our bodies that's headed towards death would be stopped, reversed, undone completely, and we would have life eternal. And God made that tree for us. And everybody in here wants life. Like we want to eat from the tree of life and be more alive than ever before. We want to live and have life and have it to the full. We long for something better, something more. We want to get back to that tree of life. But we, each one, have lost our way because of sin. Every person in here has sinned against God and we have lost our way back to the tree of life and we can't get back. And the reason we can't get back to the tree of life effectively is because God has blocked the way. God has blocked the way back to the tree of life. We all long to get back to that tree and eat from that fruit and live the life we are created to live, but God has blocked the way. But don't mistake God blocking the way back to the tree of life as punishment for our sin. That's not what's going on at all. God in His grace has blocked the way back to the tree of life because if you and I ate from that tree in our sinful state, we would not like the outcome. See, God has a different plan he has a plan of grace to carry us back to the tree of life and invite us to eat the fruit from the tree of life, free of sin, completely redeemed and washed clean so that we might live forever in the hope of glory. And this morning, I want to tell you about Jesus' plan to carry us back to the tree of life. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to start reading in verse 1, kind of work our way through the first seven verses together. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the messenger or the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, before we talk about what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I want to remind you of some things here that have happened in this verse. The church in Ephesus is the recipient of this message of Jesus Christ. The church in Ephesus is a gathering of people just like us who have heard the gospel message and have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and then gathered together as a group of believers living out faith in Christ right where we live. That's the church in Ephesus. 
A group of people heard about Christ, decided to follow Christ. Now they're gathering together to follow Christ together as a community of believers. A local church in Ephesus, just like us, are receiving this message from Jesus Christ. Now, specifically in Ephesus, it's really hard to follow Jesus Christ. You get a little glimpse into the conditions of Ephesus if you read Acts chapter 19. There's a temple there, the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. And it gives you a really clear indication of what it's like to be in Ephesus. Everything in Ephesus revolves around the temple to this false god. The economy revolves around it. The leadership revolves around it. Everything. It's one of the great wonders of the world at that time, the temple there. And so everything is about this false worship of a false god. And everything revolves around it. Now think about what it would be like to be a believer in Jesus Christ living in Ephesus. Not easy difficult place to follow Christ. And Jesus Christ has a message for this group of believers in this community called Ephesus because they are gathering together to follow Christ and he has a word for them. Now what he says in the beginning here is just a reminder, what is said to them by the messengers, a reminder of who Jesus is. And we get this little sentence describing Jesus, which is kind of a flashback to chapter 1, in fact, every message to all seven churches we're going to walk through in the weeks to come, we will see a flashback to chapter 1 in, in the vision of Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be some specific aspect of who Jesus is that the church is going to be reminded of so that they might properly see Jesus and be ready then to hear what he has to say. And so Jesus wants the church in Ephesus to hear about who he is. And what he wants them to hear is that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Remember at the end of chapter 1, we discovered, because Jesus told us, the mystery of the seven stars and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the seven messengers to the churches. Jesus is saying, I've got this message in my hand for you. In my right hand of favor, I have a message for you that you need. What I'm going to say to you is the perfect message just for you. He says, I'm the one who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus is reminding the church in Ephesus, I'm the one who's walking right where you live. Everything you face, I know. Everything you're challenged with, I know. I know what's going on in your heart and your lives right now, where you are, when you are. I'm there with you. So Jesus is saying, I understand fully what it's like to live in Ephesus because I'm with you. And I have a message that's just right for you. So I want you to listen to what I have to say. She says, look at who I am because that will prepare you to hear what I have to say. And what I want you to be reminded of right now about who I am is that I have just the right words for you and I know everything you're facing. Now listen. And then he tells him, verse two, I know your works and your labor and your perseverance that you do not tolerate evil, that you test those who call themselves apostles 
and they're not, and you find them to be false, to be liars. And you are persevering and you are enduring on account of my name and you do not grow weary. So Jesus starts out telling the church in Ephesus, and you guys are doing some things really well. You're not giving up. You're hanging in there. You're working hard. You're giving of your effort and your life. You're actually standing in the midst of problems and challenges that are coming against your church and you are holding to what is true. There are people that are coming saying, we're representative of Jesus Christ and you are testing them by what they say and what they do and you are actually identifying those who are not right and those who are right because you're holding to the truth. You are having doctrinal integrity and purity. You're working hard. You're pursuing something that's really good in the realm of truth. You're not growing weary. It's hard living in Ephesus and being a church in the midst of that place. Many of you probably lost your jobs. The economy's built around the temple. Many of you probably lost your friends and neighbors' affirmation of who you are because you're going against what they believe. But you're hanging in there. You're not growing weary. He really encourages them because of what they're actually doing where they live. Remember, Jesus has come with a message that they really need to hear. And so he continues and he says, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus says to the church, you guys are doing a great job in so many ways. But here's what you really need to hear from me. You've left your first love. I want you to remember. I want you to remember what it was like when you started out following me. I want you to remember what it felt like. I want you to remember what you did. I want you to remember what it was like when you first heard the gospel and you made the decision in the midst of Ephesus to follow me. I want you to remember your first love. And I want you to do the things you did when you first met me. It's, it's not that what they were doing wasn't good. It's not that what they were doing was a problem. What they were doing was wonderful. Jesus was giving them incredible encouragement about it, but Jesus doesn't want them simply to do what is right as a Christian. He wants their hearts. He wants them to return to the first love response to Jesus Christ. Do you know what I see in people who turn their hearts to Christ? You know, they're, they're, you know what, what is it that the Ephesian believers needed to do? Well, we don't, we don't see here what they really needed to do again. But we know that whatever it was Jesus wanted them to do, they knew it. They knew exactly what they did when they first came to Christ. Now, we don't know exactly what they did, but I can watch and see what people do when they come to Jesus Christ. Think about what you did. Here's what I see in people's lives when they come to Christ. When they hear the beauty of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sin 
You have sinned against him. He died for your sin, and your sin was placed on Christ. He became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of your sin because he paid the penalty of your sin by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. When somebody hears the beauty of the gospel message and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it transforms who they are. They experience forgiveness. They experience the love of their creator, calling them back to who they were created to be. They experience a restart and a freedom from guilt and shame of all the past things they know were broken in their lives. They experience new life and it changes who they are and they get excited about pursuing Christ and wanting to know him. I hear one of the first things out of new believers' lives is I I hear from them, I want to know more about Christ. I want to know how to read my Bible. I want to know how to pray. I want to know how to know more about Christ and how to follow him. And and you begin to tell them what to do. And they're like, okay, I'll do it. And they just begin to do it. It's not like it's a a, a burden or a problem or a a quota they got to check off. They're just excited about getting to know Jesus because he has transformed their lives. And they're full of excitement and emotion and thanksgiving. They cannot believe that God loved them. You know what else I see in them? I see this desire to tell others about what God has done. Like when you, when you see somebody come to know Jesus Christ and they're excited about following him, it's all new. It's just thrilling their hearts. You know what, what they say when you say, uh, you need to get baptized. When? How about now? I mean, they're ready. They want to tell others. They're excited about others finding out about Jesus Christ, who he is, how he's changed their lives. It totally consumes their hearts, and they're excited about pursuing Christ and proclaiming Christ. You think about what it was like for you when you first met Jesus. I know for me, I felt like I belonged to the Lord, like he loved me. He adopted me to be his child. He wanted to pour out his favor on me. That even though I was sinful against him, he overlooked my sin because he laid my sin on Christ and he accepted me as if I were just like Christ in my perfection. He loved me and overwhelmed me. And I wanted to know him. I wanted to pursue him. And I wanted to tell others about him. What was it like for you when you first met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I suspect there was emotions involved. It's oftentimes an emotional experience when you first meet Jesus Christ. And the emotions are overwhelming. And you can classify that experience as a first love experience with Jesus Christ. You first experience the grandness of his love. And it shapes your life immediately to follow him. And what Jesus Christ is saying to the church in Ephesus is return to your first love. Now, I want you to notice here, he does not say return to how you felt when you first met Jesus. He says return to what you did when you felt the love of God for the very first time. I'm so glad he did that because I've discovered along the way that it's very hard for me to control my emotions. Like I can't conjure up an affection for God. Like it just kind of comes 
in cycles, in waves. There are times that are just like it was when I first met Christ. Man, my heart is on fire. I can't wait to follow Christ. I can't wait to tell others about Christ. My heart is just full of God's love. And then there are other times when the emotion just wanes. And honestly, I feel like, man, I'm just dry inside. There's, there's not a lot of emotion right here. Have you ever been there? You know what I'm talking about. And it's like I cannot control what my heart feels about God. And I'm so glad that Jesus Christ said, I want you to repent and do the things you did at first. Because here's what that says to me. I don't have to worry about my heart. Because it was never how I felt about Christ that caused me to follow him in the first place. It was what he said to me that caused me to follow him. He said to me, if you do not follow me, you will not be forgiven clear warning in the gospel. And he said to me, if you do trust me, I will forgive you and give you eternal life. Clear promise in the gospel. And God used the, the warning and the promise of the gospel to cause my heart to trust in him. And with that moment came an appropriate emotional response but my following him, pursuing him and proclaiming him was not because I felt great about Christ. It was because Christ told me he would love me and save me and he changed my life. It was because of his promises and his truthfulness and his goodness that I did what I did when I first met him. And when my emotional swing goes down and I say, my heart is dry. I don't feel like I love God right now. I don't have to conjure up some emotional reaction to God. I just have to focus on the promises of God that secured my heart in the first place and do the things I did at first and let God take care of my heart. He wants me to orient my life to what I did when he grabbed my heart in the beginning and keep on doing that. No matter what I feel, no matter what happens, no matter how difficult it is, he wants my heart secured in his truth. Do the things you did when you first met Jesus Christ because the promises you claimed in that moment have not changed. And he'll take care of your heart. And there'll be times in your life of following Christ where you will be like, man, I'm so on fire for Christ. My heart is full. And you will do the things you did at first. And then there'll be times you're like, man, I'm in a dry period. I don't feel a lot. But I know what he did. And I'm going to keep on doing because I know what he did. Jesus wants your heart. And this is a message that's very, very serious. Now, I do think it's good advice just for marriage. I mean, the principle itself is really applicable to a lot of areas of our life, particularly marriage. I mean, think about it. It's probably a good idea for you to do some of the things you did at first when you were courting, dating, wooing the heart of your now spouse. That's probably a good principle to withhold uh, in, in your mind, thinking about I should still be pursuing my spouse so as to win their heart like I did way back when. I can't tell you how many couples, maybe even my own marriage, I've heard things like, well, you remember when you used to? And yes, it's a good principle to follow in our marriage, return and do the things you did at first. It'll be better for you in your marriage. 
As much as this is a helpful principle in our marriages and our homes, this is not a helpful principle in your spiritual life. This is the only way it works. Look at what Jesus says. He issues here this gracious warning at the end of verse 5. He says, unless, he says, otherwise I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You need to return to your first love and do the things you did then. If you don't do this, I'm coming and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now think about what the lampstand is. We've already been told by Jesus Christ the lampstand is the church. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys are doing well, you're not growing weary, you're hanging in there, you're doing the right things, you're standing for the truth, but you are no longer doing the things that really defined who you were when you first met me. It's like I've lost your heart. You're not pursuing me. And if you think that that's what it means to follow me, and you don't repent, I'm coming. I'm going to remove you as a church in Ephesus. Because what I don't want is a group of people in Ephesus who are saying they're my followers, but I don't have their hearts. This is a warning. It's a gracious warning. See, Jesus has not done it yet. He's not even saying he's going to do it. He's saying he's going to do it if they don't turn back to the Lord with all their hearts. And this is an incredible, gracious warning. It's like you and I driving down a, a road, dark, one dark night, driving down a road, and we're coming up to a hairpin curve in the road, on the other side of which is a cliff. We're driving down that road, dark at night, can't see anything, hardly visible, and we come to that hairpin curve, and there is no warning sign. As we go over the cliff, we're going to be pretty upset that there was no warning. Where was the sign? But if we're driving along that road late at night and we see that warning sign of a hairpin curve, as we slow down and take that curve, we are not going to say to ourselves, I hate warning signs. So cruel. It would put that up there. I cannot believe that somebody would say, I would be destroyed if I go over the edge of that cliff. That is so wrong. No, we sit there and we say, I am so grateful for that sign. That sign saved my life. Thank you for that warning. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. On the road of our lives, we're coming to a hairpin curve, on the other side of which is a cliff. And if we do not return to our first love, Jesus is saying, you will be destroyed if you go down that road. And you can't be the church I will call you to be if you don't come back to your first love. And he's put this warning sign up so that they might respond and take the curve and turn their hearts back to Jesus Christ. It's a gracious warning. He follows that warning with this interesting affirmation of who they are. He says to them in verse 6, But you have this, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's really interesting that he, he affirmed them at the beginning and then he gives them this, this challenge to repent and return to their first love. Then he gives them some great warning, returning them to this idea of the gospel, a warning to come back to Christ. 
And then he throws in this accolade. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know hardly anything about the Nicolaitans. There's very little to be known. It's all found right here in the book of Revelation. It gives us virtually no insight into who they are. But here's what we do know about them. Jesus doesn't like what they're doing. And neither do the believers in the church of Ephesus. And Jesus says, by saying that, you're headed in the right direction. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you. You're headed in the right direction. Just go all the way to repentance. Don't stop where you are thinking you're okay just because you're doing some things well. No, make sure that whatever you're doing right in your life as a believer is coming from a heart that's completely captured, surrendered to Jesus Christ. I gotta have your heart. I gotta have you. You're doing well, but go the full distance to repentance. Listen, church, I wanna tell you, I really believe that right now our church family is doing well. But I also believe that God is saying to us, don't stop short of letting me have all your heart once again. This is about each one of us who is a part of this church family. God wants your heart. He wants you to be captured by who he is. He doesn't want you to stop short of repentance and doing what you did when you first met Jesus Christ, returning to your first love. He wants you. Don't stop short. There is far too much at stake. Look at the promise. Verse 7, the one who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. We're going to see this again and again in each of the messages to the churches. The one who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know who needs the message? Repent. Return to your first love. Do the things you did at first. You know who needs that? Whoever has ears to hear. Whoever has ears to hear needs to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church. And then Jesus says exactly what he wants us to clue in on here in this term of a promise. And he says, to the one who overcomes, I will give to him the opportunity to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We're going to hear this concept of overcoming. Again and again, as we get to each church, the one who overcomes, here's the promise. The one who overcomes, here's the promise. Jesus wants us to be a people who overcome. You know who an overcomer is? One who keeps on coming back to what they did when they first met Jesus Christ and letting Jesus Christ and his promises flavor everything they are so they properly walk in repentance all the days of their life, displaying the life of Christ in all that they do. If you're an overcomer, Jesus says... I'm going to carry you back to the tree of life. But this time, you'll be forgiven of all your sin when you eat from that tree. Revelation chapter 22, we're going to see it unfold right there in front of us. The tree of life right there. And we're going to see what it means to eat from the fruit and eat the leaves of the tree of life. How they bring healing and life forever. He's going to carry you back. But the only way back is the way of repentance. 
You know, in, in Ephesus at the temple Artemis, in the middle of that, one of the most important places at that temple was a tree. If you committed a crime in Ephesus, you could run, you could literally outrun the people who wanted to catch you and prosecute you for that crime. You could outrun them, outmaneuver them, outsmart them. And if you got in the temple and you were willing to, you were able to cling to that tree, they could not prosecute you for your crime. And because of that, that tree became the centerpiece of their worship. And everybody in Ephesus would center all of their identity around that tree. But the little church in Ephesus, they knew there was a better tree. And they wanted Jesus Christ to carry them back to the tree of life. And they were willing to lose their lives to get to that tree. You know, in your life and in my life, we got some trees that get our time and our energy and our effort in our workplaces. I mean, we can, we can do the right things. We can work with integrity. We can work hard. We can have the correct work ethic. We can develop leaders. We can do all the kinds of things that a Christian should be doing in the workplace. And God could say to us, you're doing a great job where you're working, but right now you're doing that at the expense of pursuing my son. And for you, that great thing in the workplace has become a tree of death. Because it's not going to work out for you if you don't come back to pursuing Jesus Christ. Don't do all those great things at the expense of Christ. No, return to the things you did at first and then let your relationship with Christ be the reason you do all that you do. So that you're pursuing Him and proclaiming Him. A lot of people invest a lot of effort and energy in family. And I'm all for family. I see parents all the time investing a great deal of time and resources in the life of their children. I'm all for that. But if we invest in our families at the expense of doing the things we did when we first met Christ, we are simply gathering around and grabbing hold of a tree that will lead us to our death. There is not any investment you can make in your family that results in life if the investment in your family causes you to turn away from pursuing Jesus Christ. Jesus wants our hearts and he wants what we do in our families to come out of a return to what we did when we first met Christ. What Jesus Christ wants to do is to help us see that all the trees we're clinging to in our lives are simply trees of death and to trust him to carry us to the tree of life. And I'm going to tell you why he can do it. Because when he lived on this earth, he was arrested and he was taken outside the city and to a place called Golgotha and he was strapped on a tree. He was nailed to a tree, a tree of death on which he bore our inclinations to grab every other tree other than the tree of life. He bore that. He set us free from that. So when he died on the tree of death, he could then carry each one of us who trust in him to the tree of life forever. But the only way for him to bear us to the tree of life is the way of repentance. May it not be said of us, you've left your first love and you refused to let me carry you back. May we all today Invite Christ to carry us back, to do the things 
you did when we first met him. 